Let's turn now to our study of uh, Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 14. And we're actually going to go a little bit back to verse 41, and then we'll go forward to verse 52, but we'll, we'll call it there. Um, that looks like it's going to be on page 1012 in the Pew Bible. Mark 14. I'm going to do a little bit smaller block than I'd initially put in the bulletin, because as I was... Uh, Reflecting on Mark's gospel this week, I'm convinced more and more that Mark is focusing our attention in the next section on the interplay between Christ's uh, trial and Peter's denial. So Mark's contrasting those two figures, and so I want to take those in one block uh, uh, next week. So this week we're a little bit short, uh, just looking at the actual arrest in the garden, although I think it's going to be profitable Uh, And I want to back up slightly to catch this contrast between Jesus and the disciples that we have here in the story. So I'm going to read 1441 through verse 52. Uh, And Jesus came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See My betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. When he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, And he kissed him, and they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they left him, they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Okay, so backing up, just catching this last part. In the garden, in the prayer in the garden, we see the spiritual depth of Christ's passion, the spiritual weight that he bears as he prays to the Lord. Uh, If it's possible that this hour may pass, that this cup may pass. But then we see Christ arising from prayer with courage, confidence, renewed, determined to face what is at hand. The hour has come, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners, Rise and let us be going. See, the betrayer is at hand. The hour has come. If this is a Western movie, the frame cuts to the clock tower and it's high noon. Okay, the time is here. There's no way around it. The hour has come. Judas and the Sanhedrin have been scheming and plotting to catch Christ unaware. And yet it's clear that this is indeed God's plan unfolding and Christ's faithfulness to that plan. He sees that they are at hand. He knows what's coming. 
He can hide in the bushes. He can slip away if he wants, but that's not what he does. He's not surprised, but with confidence, he goes out to meet uh, the hour. Uh, if you've seen that movie, Calvary, that came out a couple years ago, uh, the priest at the end of the movie goes out to the beach at the appointed hour, and, and he's meant to be a Christ figure in that uh, scene. If you haven't seen it, then don't worry about it. Um, which most looks are saying, you didn't watch that one, so that's okay. <laughs> don't worry about it. But, uh, verses 43 through 45, then. Immediately, Mark's favorite adverb, here it is, immediately, while he's still speaking, Judas came. Uh, the point here with Mark's immediately is that it's unfolding precisely as Jesus foresaw. He says they're here, and while he's saying the words, they're there. Okay, He sees how it's unfolding. It's focusing our uh, attention even on Christ's supernatural insight into what's happening. While Jesus is still speaking, Judas arrives. And how is he described? One of the twelve. Judas, one of the twelve. In Mark's telling of the arrest, the only two characters that are named are Jesus and Judas. He's focusing our attention in on these two figures in this central exchange. Uh, the man with the sword is just the man with the sword. We're not told that it's Peter, as John tells us. Uh, the young man who flees naked, we don't know who that is, what that's about. Uh, his shame is allowed to be uh, forgotten in the, you know, the, as history goes on. So Mark's focusing our attention in on this interchange between Jesus and Judas, and yet he identifies Judas as one of the twelve. Okay, It's stressing that just as Jesus foretold at supper, he is being betrayed by one of his own disciples, and not just by one of his own disciples, but by one of his inner twelve that have traveled with him for years now and been taught directly by him. But Judas arrives with a crowd who have swords and clubs, and they're sent by the chief priests and scribes and elders. Uh, that group, the chief priests, scribes, and elders, um, uh, double significance. One is that Jesus, on the way to Jerusalem, he told them, this is who's going to do it. Uh, Son of man's going to be delivered into the hands of the chief priests, scribes, and elders, and it's unfolding as he saw. Uh, the other significance is this is the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling body of the Jerusalem temple. Um, I guess if we wanted to be a little bit flippant, we could call it the temple industrial complex that uh, is, is running there in Jerusalem. Uh, Mark just says it's a crowd that's sent by the Sanhedrin with swords and clubs. Luke uses a term that uh, refers to a, a Roman unit of guards, so it's possible that the Romans are already involved in the arrest, which would explain how later Jesus gets in front of Pilate so quickly. Uh, presumably the Romans aren't that eager to hear trials over religious disputes, so maybe they already have been priming the pump, saying, you know, there's this guy that's a lot of trouble, He's, it's going to cause a riot during Passover, send some guards with us, we'll, we'll pick him up tonight, we know where he's going to be at. Uh, you can see how maybe the Romans would go along with that to try and keep peace. The problem with prepping with one Bible and then using the church Bible is it the words are on a different part of the page than they were if you're looking at it during the week, but I, I, I found where they're at now. Uh, verse 44, the betrayer, uh, it's a flashback. Judas is called one of the 12. I just gave it away, but how is he now identified in verse 44? The betrayer. Okay. Uh, it, it, it's driving home this point. He's both one of the 12 
and the betrayer. It's not good guys and bad guys. It's Christ who alone is faithful and everyone else who flees, who betrays, who turns against. It's a flashback tells they prearranged a sign. And what is the sign? Yes. A kiss. There's a few things in the story that have always puzzled me in this little passage. Why a kiss? And who's this naked guy running away at the end? Okay, uh, so, so indeed, why a kiss? This is where we get the English expression, the kiss of death. Uh, but it's not an expression before this. Why a kiss? It's marked with a kiss. Well, let's back up from there. Why do they need a sign, uh, do you think? To know which one is. Well, you got paid for it. Yeah, he's got to do something, uh, play a role. What are you saying, Austin? There's 11 other guys there. Yeah, there's at least yeah, there's 11 other guys. Mm-hmm. In the Which guy is the right guy to arrest? Um, yeah, Albert? I was thinking that. I thought the chief priests, and they were there, but it wasn't. If, if they had hired just Roman soldiers, yeah. the soldiers weren't involved yeah. with uh, the tensions in the Jewish community. They probably didn't have a clue. Yeah, and Romans, you could imagine, even having a flippant attitude. You know, what's, how do we know one Jew from another? That, you know, what's this kind of a... Who were we to know? So, so that's the reason for a sign, but why a kiss? Uh, kisses are used for greetings in the Bible a number of times to show honor. And so there seems to be something particularly um, uh, twisted about using this sign of honor as the way to signify it. Yeah. Showing that I'm affectionate to you, not your betrayer. Yes, yeah, yeah, so maybe it's a way to cover for himself. Uh, Calvin's kind of interesting at this point. He's saying when he comes up and he says, Rabbi, it's like Judas almost when he sees Christ face to face is realizing what have I done? And so he's saying, Rabbi, you know, he's calling out to him. Uh, and yet he goes through with it and kisses him. I'm still not 100% settled on why a kiss. That's, it's, but but I, I think Chris is probably right that he's, uh, maybe he can play it off to the other disciples that no, I was the one, you know, I was just, Gave him a kiss and greeting him. I'm not the one who betrayed. You know, maybe somehow he could try and get out of it. Yeah, Lulu. Also, true that earlier, I get the the Lord's Supper in the Bible. Then I think Jesus gave Judas a kiss, like to show that he was the one who was going to betray. Someone else said no. I'll let the meat of us hash your salad. I don't remember that, but I I, I forget things. So. Um, Yes, Austin. You do remember it, yes. When I envision this, like, I'm envisioning Judas walking up to Jesus, like, at the head of a mob of armed guards and giving him a kiss. So at this point, like, it's pretty clear that Judas isn't really on the, yeah. on the right side. So, like, why, yeah. why even bother with the deception? I guess? I, it, it is said that it's a prearranged sign, and so maybe he thought there was going to be a way that it could be a bit more... Uh, surreptitious, I guess would be the word, but I, it's still a question that I have not resolved yet. And I've gone over this a few times now. Uh, yeah, well, this is the way, uh, kind of, yeah, yeah, Nate. This seems so inappropriate. Um, and what Judas is doing is so inappropriate. I yeah. It just adds weight to what he's doing. <laughs> yeah. This very affectionate sign and yet what he's doing is condemning Jesus to death. Uh, yes, yeah, and the, the Greek word is um, uh, for kiss, or at least this kind of kiss, I don't know all the 
it's not a word study I've studied extensively, but at least this word, it's, it's um, the root's similar to the word that we get, Philadelphia, brotherly love, phileo. And so, so there's even this, yeah, like um, it's a sign that's meant to express love, and yet it's expressing the opposite of it. That, yeah, there's an absurdity to the, the betrayal. And I think Jesus, in one of the other Gospels, asks Judas, would you betray the Son of Man? Yes, because, uh, yes, that's right. Um, well, uh, the prearranged sign is to go with instructions. The one I kiss sees him and lead him away under guard. Is it force and power? Take hold of him. Well, moving ahead to verse 45. When he comes, he does as he prearranged. He goes up to him, he cries out, Rabbi. And he kissed him, and they laid hands on him and seized him. Uh, again, I, I think we've picked up the, the details here that dis, seems so disingenuous and, and bizarre even. Um, and then Judas drops out of the story from here on out. Uh, other Gospels follow Judas uh, uh, forward from here, but Mark doesn't pick up his story again. Uh, Mark is one of the twelve who is a betrayer, who used signs of apparent piety as the way to betray his Lord. And certainly Judas presents to us then a searching image that even those who claim to be disciples uh, can be false. Uh, and, and it's a warning to us that we can even use our signs of piety as a way to cover our own uh, sinfulness. While they lay hands on him, they seize him. Again, there's an emphasis on force, on power. Uh, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest cut off his ear. It's interesting, in Mark, it's just anonymous, and there's no more details about it, about Jesus doesn't say, put away your sword, uh, he doesn't heal anyone, it's just this kind of weird thing that happened. Uh, the current scholarly consensus is that Mark was the first gospel written. Um, earlier periods would have thought Matthew was the first gospel, but assuming Mark is the first gospel, you can kind of see this is something that happened. Mark includes it because he's making a point about it's not about swords. Uh, you could see Peter then kind of owning up to it and being like, yeah, I was that guy, and that's how it ends up being recorded in John's Gospel that Peter is the one who did it. Uh, he leaves it anonymous here, and in fact, one of those who stood by, it's not even clear whether they're with Jesus or with the guards. It's just there's a sword there. Yeah, Nate. I wonder um, if this is Peter's relating the Gospel to Mark. Yeah. Which I, I think that's what I've heard. About. Yeah. The... Peter doesn't want to have any accolades because he knows what he's going to do in the very next yeah. section. He's denied Jesus, so to have yeah. his own name be in there. I stood up for Jesus. Yes. He's like, no, I yeah. don't, I don't yeah. deserve any praise for that. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe. Uh, yeah, the way I had thought about it, uh, complementary to that, is that Mark is focusing on the Jesus-Peter contrast that's going to come in the next scene. And so because he's structuring it in that way, bringing up Peter here kind of muddies that dynamic is probably why Mark left it quiet. Um, uh, I think, yeah, I do think that idea from the early church that Peter's account of the gospel is, re is recorded by Mark, I think that makes sense to me. There's no reason to doubt it. Um, uh, and yet Peter doesn't pull punches other times. He's willing to say it was, you know, at other points, so it's not exactly clear why it's, but yeah, that makes a lot of sense that you could misinterpret it as being the brave one who stood up for Christ. How does Jesus respond then?
It's not a trick question. Versus for you, I have every opportunity to arrest me. Yeah. Right now and now you're doing it under cover of darkness and force. Yeah, it's indignant. Uh, have you come out with come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, but you you did not seize me, but let the scripture be fulfilled. Uh, this term, he, have you come out against me as against a robber? Uh, Josephus uses that word primarily to refer to the zealots, which is this kind of um, uh, political rebels in the first century. Um, we might even say that they were uh, terrorist kind of figures. Um, and in, in uh, chapter 15, verse 27, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. Uh, my understanding of Roman law, it's unlikely that these are just like petty thieves who grab something in the marketplace and are getting crucified. Generally, crucifixion was reserved for people who um, uh, resisted Rome's power. It's a show of power and force saying, we are the rulers, you are not, get in line, or this is what happens. Uh, and so it seems likely that in Mark's gospel, both here and at the crucifixion, robber is, is, is stronger than robber. It's, uh, maybe brigand would be uh, a closer in English, but rebels, uh, people who are resisting Rome's authority. Well, that raises an interesting question. Am I a rebel that you come out with me against me with swords and clubs? Uh, well, what are rebellions? What's the goal of a rebellion? Well, one, to get your own way, right? That's when, when we rebel against uh, God, when kids rebel against parents. It's about getting your own way. Political rebellions, what are they about? Disruption. Disruption? Overthrowing establishment. Overthrowing establishment, change in power. That, yeah, exactly. Uh, generally, power structures in our world function a little bit like you can imagine a line. You got the ruler, you got the rule. And a rebellion's about flipping that, okay? Someone who's down in the ruled class wants to be the ruler, flipping it on its head. Do you remember how the who put it? Meet the new boss, same as the old boss? That's how rebellion works. Uh, you, you, you're just flipping, the power structure's the same, but you're just flipping who's on the top, who's on the bottom. Well, what is the central uh, uh, theme of Christ teaching? Oh yeah, Jesse. Quick question. So then in 49, the apostle is directing his, uh, you did not see, maybe directing that toward Rome, those who are capturing him? Because they would have been around. Yeah, they would have been around. I'm guessing, my, my, my read is that he's directing that towards this represent, them as representatives of the Sanhedrin, saying, you run the temple, I'm in the temple, you could have done this any time, you know this is unjust. Nevertheless, let scripture be fulfilled. Um, What's been the main theme of Jesus' teaching in the gospel? Royal love. Loyal love. Royal love. Yeah. Royal law. Royal law. The kingdom of God. Love others as yourself. Yeah. Love. Oh yes. Love others as yourself. Uh, love the Lord your God. Yes. Uh, the thing he teaches the most about in the gospels is the kingdom of God. Okay, um, and we'll see when he's tried before Pilate that that's the issue that's at hand. Are, are you claiming to be a king? Are you claiming rule? Well, the kingdom of God does come with its own 
Uh, it does imply God's rule. It does imply a different king. But much more than that, it's not just flipping the power structure so one of the ruled now becomes the ruler and the ruled ruler becomes the ruled. It's not just flipping that on its head. It's a totally different structure. It's a totally different way of doing things. It's an upside-down kingdom. What does Jesus say? The first will be last and the last will be first. If you want to be chief, you must be the servant of all. It's totally di- uh, disrupting that whole way of doing things. So Christ doesn't come as a rebel saying, you know, Che, how do you say his last name? Uh, che Guevara. Che Guevara, there we go. Uh, uh, you know, that kind of a rebel where it's like, okay, now we're going to get in power and run things. Um, uh, but rather he's saying the whole power structure needs changed. Um, and this really is a pretty important point, I think, for how we think about the modern world. Uh, so much of political thought is predicated on the goodness of rebellion and revolution. And so, uh, you know, if it's American revolution, uh, I guess we had the, a little bit of the football game on and you have the whole singing the national anthem, per, you know, praising the Re- American revolution, uh, then you have, or the French revolution, or think in, in, in England, what happens with their revolutions there? Oliver Cromwell comes into power, what happens to King James the first, second? Charles. Charles, Charles. Charles. oh, thank you, yeah, help keep me straight. What happens to him, though? Charles I is beheaded. Yep, and then Oliver Cromwell comes in, and then what happens to Oliver Cromwell at the end of the, of the revolution? Well, not, not Cromwell, but some of the people were beheaded. Yeah, uh, and Cromwell, oh, Cromwell dies before the end of it, doesn't he? But yeah. then they dug him up and then hung him and then tried <laughs> <laughs> and quartered him. I mean, these kind of revolutions, that's what's happening. It's just the, the ruled becomes the ruler, they behead the old ruler, and then they get beheaded, and it's just flipping over and over. And yet, especially with Karl Marx, you have this idea that the revolution is the hope that when the ruled sees power and they're in charge, then everything's going to be equitable. Then everything will be fair. Finally, we'll have utopia. And as a result, um, you know, with, I mean, this is a much bigger issue, and I, we can chat at supper, I suppose. But uh, as a result, especially like 1960s liberals onwards, every time there's a revolution, they get excited. Maybe this is the promised coming. Maybe this is the revolution that will bring freedom. And so you have all kinds of uh, uh, liberals that were very excited about the Arab Spring in 2012, 2013, 2011, that we're having revolution. We're going to see something good come. And yet what happens in most of these revolutions in the Middle East is they have more authoritarian, more regressive people come into power than they have before. It actually goes the other way. Uh, and, and so what I want us to see is, in a sense, Jesus picks up part of that. Yes, we do need a revolution. But it's not the revolution that Karl Marx hopes for. It's not the French Revolution, not even the American Revolution. I don't, there never was a Canadian Revolution. I don't know how you guys came to our country. It's, it's a mystery to me. Just ask. Just ask, the nice way. Uh, uh, I saw a joke that you, you saw they shot down these things over Canada. And someone was saying, who would have guessed that it was uh, Canada that's going to start a war with UFOs from another planet? <laughs> uh, well, anyways, that, you know, in a sense, it picks it up that there is a need. We sense that these power structures are wrong. And yet, just to say, well, if the proletariat rises up and seizes power from the bourgeois, that's going to solve everything. Well, no, it never solves everything. What we need is, is Christ revolution, which not only is there someone new on the throne, but the entire way of doing things. It's an upside-down kingdom. It puts service above being served. 
It puts uh, uh, putting others above yourself, humility. It elevates all those things. Uh, as uh, Jack pointed out, the law of love. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. It's a different way of doing things. And so that's what we need. That there's uh, a, a glimmer of truth in the hope that so much of the world has, and yet there's a bunch that's wrong. <laughs> and yet we see here the good hope, the true hope. Isn't there a bit of irony in it, too, that Jesus says, you come to me like a robber? Yeah. But he's in control. They're actually trying to steal it yeah. from him. Yeah. And I think in a sense, yeah, yeah, absolutely. They're, they're the ones who are really rebelling against God's authority as being expressed in Christ. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think, I think the way he goes with it, but let scripture be fulfilled, uh, it, it disarms their power. They're coming out with swords, with clubs, and yet he's serene and confident in the midst of this. And it undoes everything. Okay, what do we read at the end there? 50, 51, 52. The disciples all drank the cup with Jesus. We're told at the, in verse 31, they all said the same as Peter. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. What do we read in verse 50? And then they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Bizarre episode. Yeah, Jack. There's a fight. There's one explanation for that a naked young man. Yeah. When where this was happening was close to a bunch of tombs, and when Jesus said, "I am," it shook the tombs and resurrected that dude. And he came out to see what was happening. He got caught up in the melee, and they tried to grab him. Soldiers, he ran away. And that's how he got into the story. <laughs> <laughs> what? Well, I, I, it's better than some of your explanations. Yeah. <laughs> I think, again, he's not named because he's representative of the disciples. That they're fleeing. They flee. They get something to be asked about. Yeah, Leslie. Well, except that I don't, I'm not reading it that way. Yeah. It says everybody else fled, but he followed. He does follow. And they, then they grab him. Yep. First of all, then he breaks free of them. Yep. But he's not. That's why I don't think he's one of the disciples. But it seems like he's maybe just a bystander or a follower. He's like actually rusted them around away, but he was brave enough to keep following. Yeah, no, I think there's a I think there's I think there's some bravery seen here. Um, you know it's it's Peter stepping out of the boat. He walks on water for a bit, and then the challenge comes and he starts sinking. Uh, there is, yeah, bravery, he's following to a degree. Uh, indeed, we'll see Peter himself only, he, he sort of flees, and yet he's following at a distance, and he's in the courtyard. So they are trying, in a way, to follow, and yet they all ultimately fall away. Yeah, Dan. Is there some parallel here with, with Christ's own garment and his, his state of undress on the cross? Yep. Um, it, it strikes me that there's the, the type of, of garment, uh, I, I don't recall what the... What the but Christ's garment that was played for by the soldiers casting the lots was all of one piece. Yep. Uh, so you've got you've got reference drawn here to the nature of the garment, and then he flees, leaving the garment behind. Christ, on the other hand, is placed on the cross, exposed yep. uh, for everyone to see. Yeah, uh, yeah, you're beating me to the punch here. I don't, <laughs> uh, I don't know about the garment that's taken from him, but Christ would have been crucified naked on the cross, and that's part of the Romans' attempt to show power, is they're stripping 
you know of everything. You're, you're totally bared uh, 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 to be ashamed. Uh, so he's, he's crucified naked. But what we read in 1546 is, and Joseph bought a linen shroud, the same uh, linen garment just like this young man's wearing, and taking down Christ's <laughs> naked body, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And so I think we're seeing here a parallel, and it's a picture of the great exchange, that this man's stripped of his shroud and flees naked. Christ is crucified naked. The shroud is put on him, and he's laid in the tomb. Uh, and, and so it's a picture simultaneously of the disciples, uh, even in their attempt to be brave, ultimately flee from Christ. Christ stays with it. He's uh, also stripped naked. Is also then killed, clothed in a garment. We can even see this picture develops a little bit further. Do you remember another time in scripture when you have people fleeing naked from a garden? Uh, Woodstock? <laughs> <laughs> that was a bug Lulu. Adam and Eve. They sin, their nakedness is revealed, they must leave the garden. And again, we see the disciples lacking faithfulness. Uh, they swore, we'll stick with you even to death. And yet they, they fail. They fall away. They all flee from the garden. But one stands steadfast in the center. Adam and Eve disobeyed in the garden. And as we talked about this morning, uh, they were exiled from the tree of life naked. Christ stays in the garden. He's arrested. He's crucified. The cross becomes the tree of life to the disciples, uh, to all who follow Christ. Uh, and so I, I think in this marks uh, picking up a bunch of things going on here of this uh, shroud and this, the disciples fleeing in shame, Christ bearing the shame on their behalf. It's this uh, poetic image of, of the great exchange. Yeah. I, I, Are I you think? familiar at all with the tradition that this is, in fact, Mark? Yes. Is oh, that an yeah. early church thing? I can't remember where that comes from. Um, no, it's, it's about like 100 years old, so it's a relatively modern. But the, this young man may have been Mark, John Mark, who wrote the gospel. It might have been. Uh, there's just not a lot about it, except that he's unnamed. So I, the more I read about it, the more I thought, <laughs> it could be. It could well be. Uh, I think, uh, Joel, did you have your hand up or Austin? No, Joel. Yes. That kind of mirrors this same thing as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, what's right? What is it? Uh, Noah is uh, Noah is naked and seeing his nakedness uh, after he gets drunk after the ark, and his sons, uh, or at least one son's, uh, I can't remember the exact word that's used there, but it's like laughing at him somehow. It's it's unclear exactly what's happening. Um, the other two then go in backwards and, and clothe him. But yeah, being being exposed is is shameful. Uh, being Covered up, uh, covers the shame. Yeah, Chris. One more thing about the kiss. I saw that one of the references. Yeah. I can find it here. Oh, I'm sorry. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So it could be that very common that a kiss is a sign of an enemy. Yeah, that's kind of a reference to that. From uh, that's from Proverbs, right? Is that's the, Proverbs. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think in, I think the sense there is um, uh, a friend who corrects you and it's painful, but they're doing it out of love is much better than an enemy who's flattering you with kisses and yet has has malintent. So so certainly that applies here. That 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 Judas, uh, you know, he's he's kissing. It seems like a good thing, better than 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 uh, wounding, and yet and yet the uh, undertone is, is is totally destructive. Yeah, Leslie. Um, I was just wondering culturally, like, for example, with that prom, and I know when we went down to Mexico, it was very common. People come up and kiss you on both cheeks. That's just yeah. a common greeting. Yeah. Um, and so and Yeah. And, um, so maybe this goes up, you know, this group. Christ is the the central thing, the most important person. He would have approached first. Yeah. To kiss and greet. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I I think certainly that's an element of it. Peter tells uh, the church at the end of First Peter to kiss the brothers, kiss each other with a holy, greet one another with a holy kiss. Um, uh, and I think in. I think in Samuel you have some episodes where people greet each other with a kiss. Um, so it does seem to be, yeah, a way of greeting each other. So it's not, it's not as, um, it's yeah. I, I should have said this. It certainly would not be as strange as if someone walked into the room and kissed me right now. But that would be culturally a very strange thing. I mean, it would be more like a, maybe kind of a, 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 a hearty hug, handshake kind of a thing. That's um, a friendly greeting. That uh, that in and of itself wouldn't have been that uncommon, and yet. Certainly, the the overt level of the sign is this is my friend, but the subtext is this is the one to arrest and put to death. Um, and so, that, so it's. Well, let's turn then to our time of, uh, of prayer, <laughs> and there's lots to uh, lots we can chat about at supper still too. Uh, scripture is so rich in that way.